we've been talking this week about what it means to be part of a, part of a church, part of, of the church, kind of the global church. And we've been looking um, specifically at Jesus and, and the 12 disciples kind of as a, as a framework. And the, and the idea is that um, as we kind of look with a magnifying glass at the relationship of these disciples and, and with Jesus, we really kind of see a picture of, of the church as a whole. Uh, and I've talked a little bit over the previous three weeks about the different backgrounds and situations that the disciples came from, and they were called into this uh, disciple, churchy kind of relationship with, with Jesus, but they came from just vastly different um, backgrounds and situations. Uh, we know that at least four of, of the disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, were fishermen. There, there were probably a few others. Um, we know like if you're reading through the Bible, there's a list in, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, the four um, gospels or kind of biographies of Jesus' ministry. There are lists of, of all 12 disciples in there. And if you've ever looked at that, you, you've probably gone, well, like, like I know Peter, James, and John, um, but, I, but who are these other guys? Uh, there's Nathaniel and Bartholomew and, and a couple Judas. There's, uh, there's a couple Simons. Um, and and we, we kind of like, we only see uh, really six or fewer of, of the disciples in the, in the gospel story. So we know at least four were fishermen, probably a, a few more. We knew that, um, that Matthew was a tax collector, so he was a traitor to his people because he was a Jew who was working for the Romans to collect taxes from the Jews, and he made his money off of those taxes. He got paid in proportion to the amount of taxes he collected from his own people, and so he was, he was not liked. We, we know that there was a... A guy named um, we have Simon Peter, who becomes the disciple or the apostle Peter. And then we have um, Simon the Zealot, and, and he was a, a Jewish freedom fighter. He, like, he was like anarchy, burn it all down. Um, just anything that you could possibly do to, to kick the Romans out. And, and absolutely believed that when Messiah came, that he would um, overthrow the Roman occupation and that Israel would be the pinnacle nation of, of the world. That, that's really what all the disciples and all the Jewish people believed. But the, but the zealots, this group of people, they were gonna make that happen um, by force. Like we don't care how many other people we, we kill, we're gonna make sure that our nation is the, is the best. And so there's this, there's this picture in the disciples of, of what it means to be <coughs> excuse me, what it means to be part of the, of the church. Because the reality is that you and I, we all come from very different backgrounds and, and different places. And, and we probably come like some of us are different political positions. We have different ideological ideas about what, what church should be or what it means to be a follower of of Jesus or how we ought to live in the world. Like there's varying ideas and, and, and we all come to this thing called church and we gotta try and figure out 
how to, how to work together to accomplish the things of God when, when honestly we might not work together in any other way outside of the church. And so the disciples absolutely had this, this kind of odd, interesting relationship and it, and it continues in the church today because there's all kinds of different people and, and we come from all kinds of different places. So today we're, we're gonna take a look at, at one disciple in particular and it's arguably, um, probably not even arguably, he absolutely is the worst example of, of what a disciple is or was or what a follower of Jesus should be. And if you haven't guessed already, it's the disciple Judas. It's, it's the guy who ultimately betrays Jesus to the Jewish leaders, to, to the Romans, and, and, and really to his death. But before we get into that, I, I wanted to just take a minute to, to pray this morning and ask that God would give us all um, understanding as we look at these things and, and soft hearts because we need to see ourselves even sometimes in the worst examples of people so that we learn the areas and the places that we need to, we need to grow. And so um, we, just, we need soft hearts, we need ears to hear and eyes to see um, this morning so that we avoid becoming kind of a modern day Judas. So let's take a, a minute to do that, would you? Let's pray. God, um, life as a follower of your son Jesus and, and, and living according to, the, to kind of the, the code and the rules of, of this new kingdom is, is difficult. And um, it's not just difficult to, to live out the things that you tell us to, to live out, it's difficult to be the kind of person that you call us to be. And, and, and we struggle, and I, for me, that's part of why church on Sundays is such a great time, because we can be together and we can be encouraged, and then we head out into the, the work week and we, and we face a, a world that is sometimes very um, different and, and, and very difficult to maneuver through um, from what, what we believe you've called us to. And so, Father, just um, do give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give us hearts that are open today because we, we do want to follow you and, and we do want to trust you and we do want to live out the principles and the, the highest ethics of this of this kingdom that we're now a part of in your son, Jesus. And so um, uh, give us that through your, through your spirit and, and help us to have soft hearts to, to be able to see and hear what you want to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna um, be looking primarily in John chapter 12 this morning. Um, and if you, if you paid attention, if you noticed, most of what we've been talking about over the last uh, three weeks has been kind of centered around the, the Last Supper, um, Jesus' last meal with his disciples. It was, uh, it was a Passover meal um, and they shared it together in this, in this upper room. We've talked a lot about that. Uh, today, we're gonna be talking about a, a, another dinner that happens just probably a few days um, before that meal. And so um, <clears throat> John starts out in uh, verse one of chapter 12 this way, six days before the Passover. That, that was the meal, that, the beginning of the Passover, the meal they're gonna share at the end of the week. Uh, six days before the Passover, Jesus came from Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served 
And Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. So Jesus has already raised Lazarus from the dead. Remember Lazarus did four days and Jesus called him back to life. They rolled the stone away and Lazarus came out. And so that dude, Lazarus is sitting at the table with, with Jesus and some others. Mary took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, which just sounds gross. Can we just be honest about that? Like that doesn't sound very appealing. Um, like, okay, so maybe we should just made from Chanel number five. I don't know, it's the only one I could think of. Uh, but it just, it just sounds gross. So just replace whatever you think smells good in your mind when you read that. Uh, so she takes this ointment, this, uh, a pound of this expensive ointment, and she anoints the feet of Jesus and wipes his, uh, his feet with her hair. Ooh. Um, that's just kind of gross. Uh, and the, the house was filled with the fragrance of the, the perfume. Now, um, we're not given too much information about, about this family, Martha, Mary, and, and Lazarus. We know that they are uh, siblings. We have no indication of whether any of the three of them were married. It doesn't say at all uh, in any of the things that we read. It doesn't give us any indication that, that there were any other people in, involved in this family. But it appears as you read through their story in the gospels that they may have had money because we never see anything about them um, working or, or doing anything. They're always just there kind of serving Jesus and, and it seems like giving or financially supporting his ministry. And so um, personally, I think Martha was probably the oldest sibling in, in the family. My guess is that maybe, and this like, pure speculation here, okay? So I'm really, there's a few things I'm basing that on. I really have no idea. It just seems like it's how I play it out in my head. Martha was probably the oldest. I think Mary was probably in the middle. M Mary clearly was the black sheep in, in the family. Martha was the rule follower. Um, Mary was the black sheep. She was the one always getting in trouble, always doing things that she um, pr probably shouldn't ha have been doing. Um, and then there's Lazarus, and Lazarus probably the, the baby of the the family and Lazarus is just a dude who's just there. Like he, like there's several stories about Martha and Mary and their interaction and things that they do. And, and it's just like in Lazarus <laughs> and Lazarus was like the biggest claim to fame Lazarus has is that, is that Jesus called him back from the dead. Like there's nothing else about his life or, or, or what we know about him. There's not given any indication in scripture, whatever was going on. So whatever the family dynamics were, it appears, at least in the story of Jesus' ministry, that, that this family, Martha and Mary and Lazarus, hosted Jesus um, and his disciples quite a lot. And they seem to be kind of um, benefactors, uh, major donors maybe to his ministry. And we're not given any indication of like why or, or where, where their money comes from or, or anything. They just happen to show up. They're just there a lot in the story and they seem to be supporting what Jesus and the disciples are doing. And, and none of th those three, Martha, Mary, or Lazarus, none of them were considered disciples of, of Jesus, but they did have a very special relationship with Jesus. In fact, um, if, you, if you grew up in church and, and you had to show up uh, at, at like Sunday school or VBS or whatever, and the teacher asked you for a Bible verse, you, you probably read the, the one, the shortest verse in the whole Bible, uh, Jesus wept. 
Um, that's it. It's two, two words. Jesus wept. And it happens in the story of Lazarus as Jesus interacts with Martha and Mary and what the turmoil that's going on in their hearts are so heartbroken about Lazarus, probably their baby brother dying. And, and it's just this overwhelming kind of, kind of moment. So Jesus has this very special relationship with them. While Jesus is, is there and the disciples are there uh, around the, the table, the text says that, Jesus, or that Mary brought this expensive perfume and she poured it on Jesus' feet. But I think that's a little misleading in the text because there's some other stories about a, a woman anointing Jesus. And um, it, it just, like, this is just not normal to just anoint um, feet. I, I think it's highly likely that that when Mary anointed Jesus, she started with his, with his head. And, and, the, and the oil uh, on the head and hair, it was a normal thing in that, in that culture. It wasn't normal to do that at the dinner table, but it was normal to um, do that culturally. Uh, and, a, and a pound of this um, ointment, this perfume, um, it would have been way too much for Jesus, for just Jesus' feet. It looked like way too much just to do Jesus' feet. So I think she probably started at, at his head. And, re, and remember, we're, we're talking about a, a desert climate in, in the first century. Jesus walked out in the desert all the time. And we've talked to several weeks in this series about how disgusting a person's feet might, might be. And remember, they don't have running water. They don't have indoor plumbing. They don't have um, like bathrooms and stuff inside. Uh, it, it's a gross time to, to live in. They don't get to take baths and press the little button where the jets come out, you know, in your little jet of bathtub things. They don't have any of that. And so it's very dry. It, it, is, it is really just a bad climate. And so putting oil on the head and the hair was a normal thing to help you keep from getting too dry. You're, to keep your scalp and your hair from getting too dry. And so it soothed your, your skin. We, we know what that's um, like. Maybe it's wintertime, right? And, and so maybe you're one of those people whose skin just gets really dry in the, in the winter because the air is so dry. And doesn't it feel good when you, when you put, well, this is what Andrea says. I, I hate hand lotion. I do, do not like it. And she's always putting it on. And I don't know if other women have this problem. Guys, you can share with me. We'll commiserate with each other afterwards. Um, Andrea never can't, she just never has figured out the correct amount of hand lotion to put in her hands. It's always, it's always the other day we were in the car and she got too little and then she had to try again and then it was too much. Um, and then, so what do they do? They go, oh, I got too much hand lotion on my hands. And then they put it on you and it's just gross. <laughs> it's just, I just don't, I don't like it but she loves it. And she's like, oh, it feels so good. So imagine, um, Jesus, imagine you're living in um, the Middle East and it's hot and it's dry and it's sandy and it's gross. And you get some, you get some lotion, some ointment, some oil on your skin. It just feels good. And, and so um, they, would, they would put oil on the, on the head. They would put it on their body, but, but really on their feet as well, because your feet would, would see the most damage during the day. It's in the, in the ground, in the dust, in the dirt all the time. And so your feet would get cracked and dry and just bad. And so it was customary to do this 
it just, it just wasn't normally done in public, uh, sitting at a, at a dinner table. When a, a person, a guest came into your home in, in the first century in the Middle East, still today, it's practiced sometimes, you, you come in and your feet get washed. Um, and, and that was customary to wash the feet, but it was not customary to put oil uh, of any kind on the, on the feet. Um, and, and certainly not normal to wipe feet with your hair instead of a, a towel. And so what Mary was doing in this moment with Jesus, though it kind of seems odd to us, it is an extravagant act of, of love. And, and I have this feeling that, that Mary is sitting there and the disciples, they've all come in. Remember, this is at the end or very near the end of Jesus' three and a half year ministry. And, and my guess is that he came in and he sat down and they were serving and they were doing all kinds of things. And then Mary noticed that Jesus just looked like haggard. Like he just looked tired and, and sore. And, and maybe she noticed that, that, that his feet were, were cracked or that he, his skin just looked really dry. And, and out of this act of, of love, she pours this expensive um, oil perfume probably on his head and his, his scalp and it ran down his face and probably onto his arms and his hands. And then eventually she puts it on, on his feet. It was an incredibly powerful moment for Mary and for Jesus. And it was probably an equally awkward moment for the rest of the disciples sitting around um, the table. And then um, one of those disciples, he, he speaks up. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, um, he who was about to betray him. That's what John says next. Now, I'd be surprised if John actually wrote the, the second half of that, of that verse. I, I think it's much more likely that a scribe, um, it, back in those days when you would need a copy of, of the Bible or, or of a specific um, letter, you had to hand write it out. And so they had these people called scribes, because this is what they did. And sometimes they would have one sitting at a, like a teacher kind of desk, and they'd have a room filled with a whole bunch of these scribes. And the, and the one at the front would read the text and all the others would write it down. Uh, sometimes they all sat in a room and they had a copy and they would just read it and they would hand write it. But I think it's much more likely that a scribe at some point was copying John's gospel down. And when it got to this point, he wanted to make sure that everybody who read it afterwards knew exactly what Judas they were talking about. This is Judas Iscariot, the one who was about to betray him. And you see this parenthetical note almost every time, and maybe every single time Judah's name is mentioned in the gospel. Like the writers and these scribes wanted to make sure that we didn't mistake who it was that was being talked about. But what I think is so fascinating about this verse, when we take that part out, is that John makes a point to say that Judas was one of Jesus' disciples. And I, and I want you to think about what that means for a moment and maybe why John makes a point to say it. Think way back to the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he's calling Peter and Andrew and James and John, he must have called Judas as well. And while we don't have a record of it, at some point, Jesus said to Judas, follow me. And, and Judas dropped what he was doing 
and he followed Jesus, just like all the other disciples. Jesus, or Judas heard Jesus when he was giving this big bunch of teaching, we call it the Sermon on the Mount, and he heard Jesus' word, blessed are the humble and blessed are the, the peacemakers and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Judas was sitting there when Jesus said those, those words. J Judas was there when Jesus and the disciples got to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee and they got out of the boat and the demon-possessed man ran out of the tombs and, and got down on his knees before Jesus. He was there when Jesus cast out that legion of demons um, from that man. Judas saw that happen. Judas was in the boat when Peter and Jesus walked on the water. And Judas saw Jesus get down on his knees and, and touch the leper and, and cleanse him. And probably not just that one, probably a whole bunch of others. Judas saw Jesus raise the widow's son from, from the death as they were hauling him out to the tomb. And, and he was present at the house when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from, from death. And he was even there when Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb. But Judas was also the one who would betray Jesus in, in just like literally just a few days. So G Judas was called a disciple, but he was, he was not devoted to Jesus. He was called a disciple, but he wasn't he wasn't devoted. And, and the reality is in, in churches all around the world, it, that's, that's true, that there are, there are people who would call themselves Christians, who would, who would show up at, at church, who, who would be a part of the, the things that go on, who sound a lot like, like followers, they're, they're a part of the, of the group, they come to church, but they're not devoted to Jesus. And, and while hopefully none of them would ever betray Jesus or betray the church, they, they really don't benefit the, the kingdom, their life. And, and so Judas, you know, think about it. He was there three and a half years. He's with Jesus. He's with the disciples. He's listening to everything that's said. He's a part of everything that, that goes on. He watches Jesus do all of these incredible things and how everybody kind of interacts with with one another like he's a disciple he's numbered with the disciples but he is not devoted to Jesus at all what, what comes um, next is um, one of the very few records of Judas saying anything in the scripture in fact I think there are only three places in the Bible where G Judas says something and it's and it's recorded um, and so we don't have very much of what he says but here's what he says next there at the dinner why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the the poor and that's exactly like if you know about Judas that's exactly what you would expect him to say but but I don't I, I don't think we should be too too hard on old old Judas uh, at the moment because the reality is um, we've all seen someone do something that we thought was extravagant. Maybe it would be extravagant for us financially or, or whatever, but maybe it isn't too extravagant for them. I don't know, but we've seen people do things and in our minds or to our spouse 
or to other people standing around, we'll say, must be nice. Must be nice to be able to get a new car. Must be nice to be able to go on a vacation. I wish I had money for things like that. Now, honestly, when we're talking about people who we think have more money than us, we then go to this question of, well, what have they given to those uh, who are in need? How come they're spending all their money on themselves? When, let's just be honest, we have no idea the financial situation of, of, of other people. We don't know what's going on. We don't know how hard they've worked behind the scenes, how much they've saved, how much they've gone without to do the things that they're, that they're doing. But it also isn't any of our business. We're, we're like, who cares? Like, that, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's, a, there's one of the 10 commandments. There's a lot of rules in the Bible, but the 10 commandments are kind of like, they're the 10 commandments. And what's one of the 10 commandments? Do not covet. And, and, and yet in our lives, often we look at other people and, and we say this, it must be nice, wish I had that, wish I could afford to do that to do that, wish I could afford a new car, wish I could afford a vacation, wish I could afford a nice house like that. And, and I think it just reveals some things like, like, man, we've got to stop looking at other people and assuming their situation by what they're doing. Because we just, we just don't know. This perfume that the Mary cracks open and pours on Jesus' body, it was very expensive. A year's a year's wages, normal working man, year's wages. Think about that today. I have no idea what the average yearly income is of, of, of a person. It probably varies greatly, honestly. 30,000, 40,000, 50,000. I, I don't know, but imagine spending your entire year's salary on a bottle of perfume that weighed about a pound. That's a lot, that's extravagant. And Mary pours this on um, Jesus' body. And, and, and for whatever reason she did it, like clearly they had the money and the means to be able to, to do this. And my guess is that, that Mary not only showed this extravagant act of love to Jesus, but my guess is that they were, they were extravagant with other people. They were generous in other areas of their life as well. There's one other thing I think we should consider in this, in this moment. Um, if you jump to Acts chapter five, there's this story, uh, Peter um, and, a, and a man named Ananias and his wife, Sapphira. Now, what, what, this was the very beginning of the church. So Jesus, it's, just, it's not very long from the story we're reading um, today. And, and so Jesus has died and he's been risen from the, the dead and, and the Holy Spirit has come in Acts chapter, Acts chapter two and the disciples are going out and the gospel message is spreading and the church is just growing like wildfire. And so the church went from like these 12 guys and then there's about 120 other followers of Jesus in the, in the Jerusalem area. And now all of a sudden it's just blown up and there's maybe hundreds and now thousands of people who are flocking into these house churches and they're trying to be a part of what um, is going on and what Jesus is doing. And, and, and so there was, this, there was this overwhelming kind of thing where these people who were coming to faith in Jesus, who had wealth, they had um, land and property, they were so overcome with gratitude for uh, not just Jesus, but for the disciples and for the church 
that they would sell pieces of property that they had and they would bring the profit, the money from that sale and they would bring it into the church and they would say, like, I want God to have this. They were giving to God through the church. And, and so you can imagine what, what would happen. Somebody sells a large piece of money and they bring thousands, maybe tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars into the church. And they go, here you go, we want God to have this and we want you to do, like, distribute it to those and you do whatever you can with it. And other people in the church were around and they saw that extravagant um, gift, that extravagant gratitude. And so they began to, they honored, they respected that gift. And so there was some kind of some praise you can imagine would go like, oh, thank you. Like it was a great thing. And so those individuals who gave those large gifts were kind of held in a, in a bit of honor. And so this guy, Ananias and Sapphira, they see that and, and they want it. They want that kind of respect and honor within the church. And so they devise this plan and they're, gonna, they're wealthy people and they take a piece of property and they sell it, but they decide they're gonna keep some of the profit for themselves. We're gonna, give, we're gonna give half to the church and we're gonna keep half for us, but we're gonna tell the church that we're giving all of the profit of the property because we want the honor and the respect that comes from that. We just don't wanna give it all. Um, and, and so, uh, they wanted to look good without really doing the thing that they're looking good for. So look at, look at what Peter says. He says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourselves part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man but to God. And so Peter makes it fairly clear that the, the, the prophet was theirs to do with whatever it is that they wanted. And, and nobody, even Peter, nobody could say anything about what they did with what belonged to them. There would be nothing wrong for them to give only a portion of the prophet to the church. There was nothing wrong with that. It was their money. They could do whatever they wanted to with it. But to lie and say they were giving all of the profit when they didn't, like that, Peter says, is unacceptable. And so we jump back into the story of Mary and Jesus. And Mary's money was under Mary's control and Judas had no business sharing his opinion about what she did with it. This is a good lesson for all of us, right? Like it doesn't matter what you do with your money, it doesn't matter. And, and, and we then get another bit of information from, from John about Judas in, in verse six. We're told that Judas said this about, hey, you should have sold that and given the money to the poor. But Judas didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Isn't this exactly what you'd expect from the guy who's gonna betray Jesus? Like Judas is just bad from the very beginning. This never seems to, to kind of cross that threshold. Like we have sympathy for Peter when he betrays Jesus and, and, and he says he doesn't know him because we feel like Peter's trying. He, Peter's at least trying. He does like really stupid thing, but he's at least trying. But Judas, like nobody expected much from Judas. Except it appears Jesus. John tells us something very important and it's not 
that Judas doesn't care about the poor. That's not the important part in the text. The question I think begs to be asked is why? Why in the world was Judas in charge of the money? If the disciples knew that Judas helped himself was to what was put in the money bag, why didn't someone take it from him? We, we'd do that, wouldn't we? we do that. Deanna is our, is our treasurer. She takes care of all the money. And if all of a sudden a whole bunch was missing, we, we'd probably come with questions. <laughs> that would be my guess. Do you know what's going on here? And she would probably say, well, Corey spent it. Because <laughs> I'm the one who does most of the buying. <laughs> she would say that. Um, but like, like we, like there, this is what we do. When somebody steals stuff that isn't theirs, this is what, what we do. I'm like, why, why didn't somebody take this? Why? Like Jesus knows. Jesus knows what Judas is, is doing. He knows what Ju Judas is gonna do. Why does Jesus give Judas this responsibility? And I, I was thinking about when um, Jesus feeds the 5,000 plus the women and children. There's 10,000 plus, plus people. There's a whole story and you can read about it in, in John chapter six. But, but here's just what I would say. In none of the stories about Jesus feeding the 5,000 people, do the disciples ever say, Jesus, we don't have enough money to feed all these people. What they say is, Jesus, do you really want us to spend that much money? It would take half a year's salary to buy bread, and we don't even know if it would feed everybody. Do you really want us to take the money from Judas and, and, and buy enough bread to, to do this? They never say they don't have enough money. They just come up with all these other reasons. And I think when Jesus says you give them something to eat, Judas grabs really tightly to that money bag and he just kind of slowly slinks back to the back of the crowd of the 12 disciples. And he's like, man, I sure hope Jesus doesn't ask me to, to buy this bread. Like, it wasn't that they didn't have what was needed. It was that they didn't want to part with what they had. And I think that's true for us sometimes too. It's not that we don't have what's needed, whether it's money or it's time or it's, it's know-how. What, what we lack isn't the capability to meet a need, it's the catalyst to meet the need. We have the ability, we have the money, we have the know-how, we just don't have the want to. We just can't get to that point where we go, okay, I'm willing to, to part with that. We have it, we just don't wanna part with it. And I think that's part of Judas' problem. The only time Judas cared about the poor or the lame or the sick was when Jesus preached about them because then people were motivated and they gave and then Judas got to help himself to more of it. But really none of the stuff, none of this that we've looked at answers the question, why does Jesus let the thief keep control of the money? And really, I think it's the same reason. The answer is the same reason that Jesus lets you and me keep the money we have. It's the same reason that he holds the door of salvation open to the worst of us, because Jesus is willing to lose anything except another life. Jesus is willing to lose anything except another person. 
I think Jesus was giving Judas every opportunity to be something he'd never been before. Loved and accepted for who he was. Not for what he'd done. Because if you think about it, do you think Jesus, Judas became a thief after Jesus called him? Because I don't think so. I think Jesus called him because he knew Judas was a thief. And he knew that Judas would help himself to that money bag. And Jesus treated Judas like every other disciple and even let him cheat all of them just for the chance that Judas might believe. This is why we serve. It's why we help our kids learn about Jesus on their level. It's, it's why we offer a cup of coffee, bottle of water when you, when you come in to help spark those conversations. It's, it's why we welcome each person or we try to when you come in the doors. It's why we clean the, the building. It's, it's why we put time to, to do the best worship that we possibly can because Jesus let a man who was a thief carry the money back in the hopes that he would find something worth far, far more. Let's pray. God, the reality is that most of us, maybe all of us, at one point or another have been Judas. We've treated what we have like Judas, we've treated others like Judas treated Mary. We've, we've been thieves. We've talked wrong about, about people. We've been Judas at times. And yet you open the door for us just like you do, just like you did for him. You give us the opportunity to mess up in the hopes that we might, through that, come to believe in you. And that we might not just be called a disciple, but that we might actually be devoted completely to you. And so, God, that's what we, that's what we pray for. As we're devoted to you, more and more we become devoted to each other and to, devoted to those who aren't even here yet. And so God, would you just help us to be the church, to love you and to love others, and to help every person possible find real life in your son Jesus and look more like him every day. Help us to do that, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.